When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Good morning to everyone. It's good to be with you virtually. I'm looking forward to being with you all, hopefully in person next Sunday. Our passage for today it takes us to a dramatically different place than we were last week. We've moved from Cana, this small village in Galilee, to Golgotha, the, the place of the school outside of Jerusalem. We moved from the joys of a wedding feast to the horrors of a public execution. We've moved from copious amounts of good wine to sour wine soaked on a sponge that will be lifted up to Jesus' parched lips as he hangs on the cross. In many ways, these two scenes that we were last week and this week could not be more different. But one thing remains the same. Mary is present. Mary only makes two appearances in the Gospel of John. She makes the one we saw last week at the wedding in Cana. And she is here at Jesus' public execution. Her appearances form this kind of, these bookends to the Gospel of John. She's there at the beginning, and she's there at the end of his public ministry. And Mary's not alone here. We have three other women here. We have Mary's sister. Kind of interesting to think about Mary having a sister. Mary, the, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have four women present, if you include Mary, the mother of Jesus. And three of them are named Mary. Extremely common name at the time. And we read that they're standing by the cross. A couple things to notice here. First, notice the contrast between these women standing by the cross and, for example, Peter. If you were to look back in John's Gospel, the last time we saw Peter, he too was standing, but he was standing by a fire. He was standing there about to deny Jesus three times. And except for the disciple whom Jesus loved, this, this kind of shadowy figure who makes five appearances in John's Gospel, we don't ever actually find out who he is, all the other male disciples are gone. Why is that? Why are the women at the cross and the males are all gone? Well, it, it might be in part perhaps because Romans would not have tolerated men being close to Jesus on the cross. They would have been perhaps seen as a threat. Maybe they would have tried to stop the execution. But it seems like more than that, because if you remember in Mark's gospel when we were going through there, Jesus saw this coming. He saw when he would be utterly abandoned at his hour of need. He saw when all would fall away. But the women are at the cross. 
Mary is standing at the cross. And, and notice, not at a distance, Mary must be close enough to the cross for Jesus to be able to speak to her. She's close enough to hear her son's words. Most of us are probably familiar with this scene, but let's think about this scene for a, for a few minutes from the perspective of a mother, what Mary would have been witnessing as she stood here. This is a gruesome scene. Mary's son had just been beaten by the Roman officials uh, so thoroughly. He's, he's probably on his way to death right then. He's bleeding. He's in horrendous pain. He's thirsty. Jesus is gasping for breath. He is dying uh, a slow death of asphyxiation. So I don't probably have to do too much work here uh, to imagine how horrific this would have been for a mother to witness. My, my oldest daughter, when she was a young child, she was bit on her face by a dog. And, I, and, and much of what I remember from that night is not the pain and shock that she experienced as the ER doctor stitched her up. What I remember even more so is the pain and agony of her mother as she watched all this unfold in the ER and she felt utterly helpless. This son of Mary's, this boy uh, that she carried in her womb, that she, she nursed on her breast, that she fed and clothed and taught and raised, this boy, as we've seen these last weeks, has both amazed her and exasperated her like sons often do to their mothers. He was now dying in front of her, naked, likely, as he came into the world. I think we can at least start to get our minds around that, the horrors that Mary would have been experiencing there. But, but we need to remember that this wasn't just a, a horrific way to die, it was a shameful way to die. This would have been shameful, certainly in the Romans' eyes, but it would have been shameful in Mary's culture and Jesus' culture too. In Deuteronomy we read, anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. To be hung on a pole, to be hung on a cross, in the Jewish imagination is to be cursed. It's why Paul will have to talk about how strange this looks, how foolish this looks. In the, Corinthian, in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, this is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This is a shameful way to die, whether you're Gentile or you're Jew. After the death of a child, understandably, a parent likely tries to find some solace in the belief that there was a purpose beyond the child's death. For example, if a child in our country is killed in active military service, the parents become gold star parents. The government honors the parents and seeks to recognize the sacrifice of the child was for a bigger cause. Mary, as she stands there, is no gold star mother in the eyes of her culture. There's no honor here. This is a shameful way to die. From where we stand... And we look at the cross, we see a cross as an instrument of salvation. We see a sacrifice for the benefit of others. We see, in other words, purpose. We see, in fact, the redemption of the whole world at work, the defeat of evil and death and sin. That's what we see standing. But that's not what Mary sees where she's standing. As Scott McKnight points out, very little in Mary's Jewish world would have helped her to expect that the Messiah would die for sins on a cross. Sacrifices in Mary's world and faith, they don't take place on crosses. Sacrifices take place in temples. And sacrifices are of innocent animals. Messiahs in Mary's world don't die as sacrifices. Mary's life, I want you to notice as we've gone through there, it's been bookended by these Moments of possible of cultural shame. She becomes pregnant as she's betrothed. She's not supposed to be pregnant. She opens herself up to the shame of her culture. And now at the end of her son's life, again, the scene is soaked in shame as her son hangs there, cursed on a tree. 
I think when we arrive at this Good Friday, we feel the pain again, but we feel it knowing that Easter is right around the corner. Mary has no understanding of Easter. Despite you know, how many times Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, that he will rise after three days, nobody expects Easter to happen. Everybody is surprised by Easter. Now, Mary's not, not standing there thinking, I know this is bad, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Easter is coming. There's no light at the end of the tunnel for Mary. There's no purpose behind this, and yet she stands there at the cross. The reason I had Jude read, uh, he read the ESV version of this, and I like it because it uses this, this old word we don't really use anymore, behold. It's a rich word. In the New Testament, oftentimes it just means exactly like most of the translations translated, look. But oftentimes behold is used in the New Testament, when, when something important is about to happen, like, behold, pay attention, take notice, something important is about to happen here. Behold, that's the word that Mary heard from Gabriel when she first learned that she would give birth to this son. Pay attention. Take notice. Behold Mary standing at the cross. What do you see? At the cross standing there, I see a woman, but not the youthful teenager we saw in, the series, in, our, in Luke's gospel. I see now Mary, I look at her and I see her, and she's in her mid-40s by this point. Um, by, by now, she is considered an older woman. She, she's, uh, for the life expectancy of her culture, she's starting to get old. I imagine wrinkles starting to show. I imagine Mary's hair starting to turn a bit gray. I imagine she feels more aches and pains that come when you start to get into your 40s. I see a woman whose body and soul have been marked with pain and suffering. We know almost surely Mary is a widow at this point. This is the reason why Joseph has dropped out of our story. We know nothing about Joseph. So we see a woman here who has endured the pain uh, and suffering of bearing a husband, and now she prepares to bury a son. A woman, I imagine, who had no idea what she was agreeing to all those years ago as a teenage girl when she consented with those amazing words, May your word to me be fulfilled. I see two swords piercing, one a son and one a mother. And I see a mother who is utterly powerless to do anything to stop this. But Mary can do one thing. She can do one thing. She can stand there. She can, Mary can offer to her son one last gift, her presence in his last hours. I don't know what Jesus was thinking as he hangs on the cross and he beholds his mother, I don't know exactly what it would have meant for Jesus, for his mother to be there. We're not told that. I know he doesn't tell her to go away. I know as Mary approaches, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't try to shield her from what's happening. And I know Jesus was human. I know he was a man. And I know almost universally, as we near death, we long for those whom we love and have loved us to be near us in our hour of death, to offer us comfort. I also know it's not uncommon for men in extreme distress to cry out for their mothers, the one who brought them into the world and nurtured them. In 2014, I read it was a Ukrainian surgeon, and, and he was working on the, on the front lines of, of a conflict with Russia, and, and, and various soldiers from, from Ukraine were coming to him, and, and he says 12 of them died on the opening, on the operating table. And he said this in the article I saw. He said, we struggled for their lives, but death won. When soldiers are dying, they all say the same thing. They call for their mothers or their fellow soldiers. They call for their mothers. In 2020, if you remember, as, as his life was slowly being drained out of him on the Minneapolis sidewalk, 
at the knee of the authorities, George Floyd cried out, Mama, Mama. What do you see at the cross? I see a profound and faithful love of mother for son. I see a mother caring for her son with her presence in his last hours. But I also hear silence. Think back to Cana. We had this really sparse dialogue between Jesus and Mary, but we did get some words from Mary. But notice here we have no words from Mary. It's as if Mary has nothing to say. You know, when unspeakable pain comes to us, as it is clearly coming to Mary, it has a tendency of making us mute. We, we, we have no words to describe what's happening to you. We are in a sense, or you are in a sense, robbed of your language at these moments. You're muted by pain. And notice, too, we don't hear any words from these three other women who stand with Mary. One of them, remember, is her sister. We don't read of any kind of shallow words of comfort offered to Mary. We don't read that the, the women try to explain to Mary why this is happening. The women do not blame Mary for this happening. In other words, I see the women avoiding the mistakes that Job's friends made at his moment when his world fell apart. These women avoid the mistakes that really, honestly, we make a lot of times when we confront someone in their, their darkest hour. And we say things like, I guess it was his time, or I guess she's now in a better place. See, at his darkest hour, what Job needed, he needed his friends to sit with him in silence on the mourner's bench. He needed their presence. He didn't need their words, and they failed him. But notice, these women, these three women, they do not fail Mary at her time of need. Mary is offering her faithful presence to Jesus and her silence in that moment, but these women are offering their faithful presence not only to Jesus, but also to Mary. Behold your mother, in her darkest hours, silent before her, only pain and suffering. I wonder if some of you, perhaps many of you, perhaps most of you, can, can relate to some degree to what Mary's experiencing, at least a little bit. Standing at a cross, she sees only pain and suffering in front of her. I wonder if you've experienced moments yourself in your life, maybe even, even experienced seasons in your life, when all you see before you lay pain and suffering. Mary doesn't see purpose or reason behind this brutal execution of her son. Mary doesn't see Easter on the other side of horror. Mary doesn't see light at the end of the tunnel. What Mary sees in front of her is pain and suffering, and all she can do at the moment is stand and look at it. Edward Sree writes, when, when we're facing our own trials, our own pain and suffering, there are a number of ways, he says, we react. He said, some people kick and scream and try everything in their power to change an unchangeable situation. Others become hardened and bitter. They blame the world. They blame God. They lash out at those around them. Still others, he says, distract themselves from the hole in their hearts. They try to fill it with constant activity and pursuits and entertainments and pleasures. Anything to cover up the emptiness and pain that they feel deep within their souls. Do these reactions sound familiar to you? I am constantly struck by how little wisdom we have in our culture in the, in the face of pain and death, how little we seem to understand how to mourn and, and lo the loss of loved ones. I'm thinking of, of someone in our own congregation who lost her spouse, and shortly after the death of her spouse, this incredible grief came upon her, as you would expect. 
And someone she knew, not, not from Midway, but someone she knew said to her, maybe you should get on antidepressants. And I don't tell you that story to speak against antidepressants. I tell you because it illustrates how little our broader culture understands grief and loss. We think that someone who has lost, who experienced the extraordinary loss of a spouse, we think that, that that extreme grief they're feeling is not normal. And in a thousand ways, we try to protect ourselves. We try to distract ourselves. We try to cover up the emptiness and pain left within our souls. But again, Sri writes this, and I quote, none of these coping mechanisms will work. Mary on Good Friday shows us the only healthy way forward loving trust and total surrender. By her example, she invites us to stand with her in that darkness and entrust ourselves to the only one who can carry us through. The Mary of Good Friday invites us to join her at the cross, to cling to God alone as she did, and to discover in a more profound way the strength that truly supports us, not only in the most difficult times, but at every moment of our lives. As our... On our journey as disciples of Jesus, thanks be to God, we have moments of pure joy like the wedding at Cana. We have moments where, as I spoke about last week, I think we feel the extravagance of God's love and care just poured upon us. We taste the goodness of God and the goodness of life. I was talking with someone not long ago who had, had recently experienced his own pain and suffering, but he, he was recounting to me in that conversation times that the Holy Spirit, he just felt the Holy Spirit come upon him. And he said this, he said, it's the best feeling in the world. And we said that, I thought, yeah, you know, if you live long enough, if you get the opportunity to pursue all the things that the world tells you to pursue, success, money, and beauty, and pleasure, and entertainment, if you, if you get a true taste of the goodness and beauty of God and of Jesus, if you taste that wine, all the other stuff looks like cheap, sour wine. Following Jesus and surrendering your life to him consists of moments of pure joy, unmatched by anything else. Following Jesus is full of wedding and Cana kind of moments. We need those. But, but here's the reality. Following Jesus as a disciple is also filled with standing by the cross kind of moments. Moments where all you see in front of you at that moment is pain and suffering like Mary. All you see in front of you is pain and suffering, which seems to serve no purpose. There is no Easter on the other side of that pain and suffering. There's only an opaque curtain of pain and despair, which you cannot see through. And I think we see from Mary here, we see the invitation to, at those moments to cling to God in the darkness. Not to try to numb the pain, not to try to ignore it, not to try to run away from it, not to lash out at others and become hard and bitter, not to try to fill it with pleasure and busyness, but to face the pain right in front of us and cling to God in the darkness, just like Mary. These last two months, I hope, I hope you've experienced what I've experienced in watching Mary as she emerges from the biblical story in a new way for me in all these roles as this teenage mother, as this teacher of Jesus, as this prophetic voice for the downtrodden, as an instigator of miracles, as a model disciple, and now as a mother of profound love and profound grief. Behold your mother standing at the cross. Watch her. Notice her. Pay attention to her. Learn from her. Let her minister to you. Let her comfort you. Let her stand there with you like a sister and let her care for you as a mother. Behold your mother.
Mary has spoken. Mary has not spoken with words, but she has testified to her allegiance and faithfulness to her son by her presence at the cross. And now it's Jesus' turn to care for his mother. Seeing his mother, we read in John's account that he also sees the, the, the disciple whom he loves standing nearby. And Jesus says to him, woman, her, her, woman behold your son. So again, like, um, like, again, like the wedding in Cana, we have this address. It's kind of a strange address. It's woman. It, it would be a little bit unusual for a son to address his mother that way, but not at all impolite or rude. Behold your mother, he says to the disciple. And we read in John's gospel that from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Took her into his home. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's doing what an observant and pious Jew would do and is supposed to do. He, he's, he's providing, in a sense, a last will and testament for his mother. Okay? Jesus is the eldest son. And it's the responsibility of the eldest son to care for his mother, to make sure in his death that his mother is cared for. And there's something... I find it extremely beautiful about this scene, and there's something a bit tragic about the scene, which we'll look at. Let's, let's look at what's beautiful about this scene. I think we, we know, I think most of us can see this. This is beautiful. In his darkest hour, okay, at, in his own pain, his own agony, Jesus continues to be outward looking. He's caring for his mother at this moment. You know, we read just before this, he, he had done something similar with his disciples. Uh, they were in the upper room, he, he, Jesus knowing his hour had come, and we read that he, he, he loved them to the end. He loved them right to the end. And the way he did that with his disciples is he stooped down and, and he washed their feet the night before he was killed. He sets aside his own, his own needs, his own desires to care for them to the end, and now he, he's doing that with his mother here. He's caring for his mother right up to the moment of his death. But there's something tragic, I think, happening here, too, that I think is easy to miss. Because Jesus isn't just a son. He's an eldest son of Mary. It means Jesus has younger brothers. And we, we in fact, we read about these in, several times in the Gospel accounts. In John, it's in chapter 7. Jesus has multiple brothers. And under normal circumstances, it should be those brothers that care for Mary. Jesus should be saying, hey, you younger brothers, it's now your responsibility to care for mother. But he doesn't do that. Scott McKnight says this. Why did he do that? Scott McKnight says this. The most reasonable explanation for why Mary is committed to John instead of to one of Jesus' sibling, siblings emerges from the tragic reality, weighing no doubt on Mary herself, that they did not yet believe in Jesus. Okay, so, so tradition tells us that Jesus' brothers did come, at least some of them came, to believe in him. We know that James becomes a, a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. We know Jude uh, writes a book. He's a leader too. But remember, this is all post-resurrection. Okay? And we know, if you remember from our series in the Gospel of Mark, that scene where, where Mary and, and the brothers show up at, at Jesus' house, they think he's lost his mind. Right? They think he's crazy. And if you remember, at the end of that scene in Mark, Jesus says this, who are my mother and brothers? Okay, and then he looks around at these people with him. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay, who, who's Jesus' mother and his brothers? Well, he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, in his ministry, is creating a new family. He, he's creating a new family, and the importance of that family transcends one's own biological family. 
And Jesus says, he's going to say in a couple of different places, hey, when you follow me, you don't do this alone. You gain mothers and you gain fathers and you gain brothers or you gain mothers and brothers and sisters. I think this is beautiful. I think this is beautiful that Jesus knows this, this disciple whom he, his beloved disciple who's been so faithful to him, who's there with him at the cross, that disciple is going to be faithful to his mother. And don't think like this disciple is going to check in with the mom once in a while and make sure she's okay. No, no, we read that she's taken into his home. Her physical needs are going to be taken care of. This is beautiful. This is the scene that, this is an example of the family that Jesus is creating, that they will begin to care for each other like family. I've on a number of occasions uh, talked to financial advisors who, who give who give me advice on how to secure my future in case of my death for my wife and my children. And I know it's coming. At a certain point, they're going to ask me if I have life insurance. And they're going to hammer home to me how important it is for me to have that insurance if I were to die. And that's fine. They're doing their job. I think they have mostly good intentions. And, and I recognize there have been numerous cases where spouses have died and left their families in very vulnerable positions. So I acknowledge all that. You know what the question, though, I've never been asked? Do you have a community of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who will care for your family if you die? You know why they don't ask that? Because in our minds, that's crazy. Like, if we're totally honest, our faith is less in the body of Christ to care for our families and more in our insurance policies and our bank accounts and our IRAs. And I know there's a tendency to balk when we talk about this and say this isn't realistic. But I'm here to tell you, I've seen this. I've seen mothers caring for sons that are not their sons like they're their sons. I've seen sons caring for mothers like they're their mothers and they're not their mothers. I'm sure if you think back in the long history of this congregation, you can name circumstances, you say, yep, that's exactly what happened here. See, when, when, when Jesus is forming a, a church, he's not forming a social club. He's not forming a building that you come to once a week and do your time and go back. Jesus is forming a community in which a son who is not your son becomes your son. Jesus is forming a community when a mother who is not your mother becomes your mother. Is that the kind of community you see? Is that the kind of community you want? You see there, in this moment, there's a transfer happening of Mary. This is a moment of transition. The earthly, that we've been, we've been tracking for the last seven or eight weeks, this earthly relationship between mother and son is coming to an end. And it's interesting, Beverly Gaventa points this out, but I, it's interesting, Jesus is being stripped back. Okay, before this scene, Jesus has his clothes stripped off by a Roman soldier. Okay, and now it's as if Jesus is being stripped of his earthly family. That last sever with his earthly family is happening with his mother here because he's going to return to the heavenly father. This relationship, this mother-son relationship is coming to an end. One chapter of Mary's life is coming to an end. And Mary has been faithful and caring to her earthly son right to the end. She's birthed him, she has nurtured him, she has taught him, and now she stands while he dies. She is a good and faithful mother. But guess what? Mary's more than a good and faithful earthly mother. Mary's a faithful disciple. And by placing her trust in Jesus, she has entered into a new family, a new family that Jesus talks about in Mark's family that consists of those who do God's will. You see, she has this kind of double honor. 
She's a, she's a faithful earthly mother, and she's a faithful mother in the family of Jesus Christ because she does the will of the Father. Mary is being moved here from a biological family to a new family, to a new community that is not defined by blood, but is marked by those who put their faith in Jesus. That's what unites us. Not our blood, our allegiance, and our fidelity to Jesus Christ. We'll see Mary one more time in the New Testament. It's going to be really brief. You can really almost miss it if you're not paying attention. It's going to come up in the book of Acts. And it's going to come up right around Pentecost, on the other side of resurrection, in that upper room, right after Jesus' ascension. Mary's with them. She's with the apostles. She's with this new community that's forming. Mary's there at the cross, but she's there after resurrection. She's there on the other side of Easter. She's there on the other side of the curtain of pain and suffering. Suffering and pain does not get the last word with Mary, and neither does it get with you the last word. And look at Mary in this little line in Acts. She's there with a new family. She's got new brothers. She's got new sisters. She's got new sons. She's got new daughters. And together, this family will go out into the world and begin to announce the best news that the world has ever known. This new community, this new family is going to go out and announce what this Mary as a teenage girl, she first got in the, in the quiet of a Nazareth village, which she first heard from the angel Gabriel. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Thanks be to God.